Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Diddy dumped China's cyber clapdown sends U.S. shares below their IPO price. OPEC ordeal, oil prices rise after supply talks are abandoned, and cyber shock. Another big ransomware attack, a $70 million ransom demand. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to be back with you on a tumultuous Tuesday. Oil prices spiking after OPEC's failure to agree on supply. China expanding its cyber probe, triggering an investor outcry. And Wall Street wakes up to it all post 4th of July. Mm. A bit of consolidation globally as investors eye OPEC's historic standoff and how it might impact growth and inflation expectations going forward. That said, we begin the trading week on Wall Street at fresh records at or around after Friday's robust June jobs jump. Europe in the meantime lower with new data showing German factory orders falling on continued supply disruptions. Even Mercedes-Benz warning today that chip shortages will weigh on second half earnings. Speaking of weighing, Chinese stocks softer in Tuesday's session two, an overhang, I think, from Monday's service sector data showing activity falling to 14-month lows. Also uncertainty with the message, I think, from China's cyber crackdown that China's own national security supersedes its tech giant's ability to raise money abroad and many other things too. And China's willing to burn international investors in the process. That message, I can tell you, heard loud and clear in the United States with Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi set to tumble some 20 percent in trading today. That's the pre-market after China blocked the mobility giant's app downloads. Shares set to fall, as you can see, well below that $14 level where Didi went public just last week. And get this, there are reports that China's equivalent to Twitter, social media platform Weibo, may decide to go private aka delist. We've had rumors like this before. That stock, though, was up some 40% on those rumors. Now the reports the company is denying it. The stock up just, and I say just, 12%. Wow, we are seeing some volatility in some of these Chinese names. Let's get to the latest on all of this in our drivers. David Culver joins us live from Shanghai. David, great to have you with us on this story. Um, let's hone in on what we've seen from Diddy because it felt like there were from the reports over the weekend that Diddy was sort of caught in the middle to some degree with investors pushing for them to list and to IPO. And on the other side, sort of a warning or a suggestion from regulators that, that challenges were coming. What do we know? You're absolutely right, Julia. I've been eager to talk through this one with you, seeing it play out over the weekend. Mm. 
The two different combating sides that you mentioned here, you've got the pressure, the mounting pressure at that from investors, this desire to start to see the cash flow in. And then on the other side, the suggestion that came from the Wall Street Journal, and according to sources familiar with the company as they cite them, that perhaps regulators were saying, hold off on that IPO, don't go so quickly. As we know, Didi went ahead with that. Now, there are suggestions that perhaps it was mixed messages that the company was receiving. Nonetheless, as they went public on Wednesday, the next day, you and I, Julia, were having a conversation about what was a major event here in China, and that was the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. The reason I mention that is because no action was taken on that day against Didi, but the following day, the first of two punches. The first, they were told to stop adding new users. The second, over the weekend, they were told to come off the app stores. They were banned there. Didi's massive, 377 million users here in mainland China alone. They're also a big employer here. You've got roughly 15 million drivers that rely heavily on getting their income from their work with Didi. And so while many folks who we've spoken with, some of the analysts, suggest it's not likely that China is going to halt them altogether. This is a strong move from Beijing and showing who's boss, Julia. They're moving ahead with this, and there is a strong also nationalistic reaction here. Some consider it some patriotic pushback. Nonetheless, it is being clearly uh, stated that Didi needs to reel itself in, do this thorough self-evaluation, if you will, review its national security data, and then perhaps once it rights its wrongs, it can move forward. Julia. I mean, there will be investors here that are incredibly angry as they see themselves now losing money if you look at the share price pre-market. And they will perhaps believe that Diddy knew this was coming, that they should never have IPO'd Mm. and also that they should never have IPO'd in the United States. And there's a bigger challenge here, David, and we can talk about this, which is, and you've sort of raised the point already, that if you're a big company in China, you have access to lots of data, data that the Chinese government believes is potentially a national security threat now or at some point down the road. If you list in the United States, you have to make that data to some degree accessible to regulators here. I can kind of understand why China would go, hang on a second, we need to make sure that everything's secure here. And that's been echoed by analysts I've spoken with, too. There is a part of this that perhaps is validated by how the Chinese government has moved forward with this, the Cyberspace Administration in particular. But then when you use that term national security, and we've Mm. seen it used by the U.S., China certainly likes to use it, especially since they've imposed their national security law in Hong Kong a year ago. It's vague. There's not a lot of specifics that go along with it, but they are certainly citing it often, and they're citing it in this case. And you're right, it's not just Didi. They've moved ahead with other tech companies that they've gone after, but those tech companies have something in common. For one, they've recently IPO'd in the U.S., and two, as you point out, Julia, they've got a lot of user data, including a truck hailing company and a, an online recruitment app. All of these things that have aggregated a lot of Chinese data in particular and has been increasingly concerning for folks who have voiced their concerns uh, online in particular here on in Chinese social media and suggesting that those companies in many ways have gone against China's values and need to be taught a lesson. That's certainly what's being echoed in state media and on Chinese social media, but there are other realities and, th- and that is there's a lot of money at stake here, Julia. Yeah. 
100%. And to your point as well, it's far broader than just one company. And a great point also that you mentioned, same language that the United States used over companies like Huawei too, the wall, Chinese wall or otherwise that's building up between these two nations. It gets ever larger where I, I just, I'm not sure companies will risk listing anywhere other than China in the future. And maybe that's the point. David Culver, great to have your insight as always. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. All right, let's move on. Brent crude is trading at its highest in level in nearly three years. And you have to go all the way back to 2014 to find U.S. crude, or WTI as it's known, at today's levels, all because crisis talks at OPEC and OPEC Plus on a new output deal were called off with no resolution in sight. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, clearly an alarm building here. And I, I sort of see two opposite and opposing routes here in the worst case scenarios that They continue to produce at current levels, that demand continues to increase in terms of oil and you see the price rising or the opposite, that this schism that we see becomes a real fracture and everybody pumps oil at whatever rate they choose to. Talk us through the, uh, the likelihood here. Yeah binary options, Julia, and neither looks particularly good, does it? Either you have a situation now, as you say, no agreement, but demand keeps rising and output remains the same. That market, already very tight, gets even tighter. And prices, as you can see, marching towards the $80 a barrel mark and could go higher. But as you say, on the flip side, the other way around, if you look at it, the UAE, if it decides to go ahead and just produce the oil it wants to, up its own capacity and other members do the same. You've got a bit of a free-for-all, oil flooding the market, and you've got a price crash, uh, exactly what OPEC was designed to avoid. Neither scenario good, and the meeting yesterday was cancelled. And I think the starkest part, really, of the statement was the fact that no date has been set for another meeting. I think we can hope, though, and assume that talks are ongoing uh, behind closed doors, behind the scenes, and hopefully talks between de facto leader Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Julia? Yeah, and it's about way more than just oil prices, let's be clear. It's a, a, the geopolitics and a power play between the new na- two nations that is also filtering surely into these discussions. Absolutely. And first off, let's look at this. It's not just OPEC, it's OPEC plus, which means Russia's at the table. That will have changed the dynamic considerably over the last few months. And then you've got the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the UAE staunch allies for decades. But you know what? They're kind of on divergent paths and have been for the last couple of years. Whether we look at the different relationships they have uh, with other countries in the region, Qatar, Israel, whether we look at the situation in Yemen, the UAE pulling its forces out in 2019, leaving Saudi Arabia alone, whether we look even at the pandemic. Right now, Saudi Arabia has a ban on citizens arriving from the UAE due to the Delta variant. So all of this is playing in around these talks. You can never really divorce the oil talks from the rest of geopolitics. Julia? (laughs) Anna Stewart will watch and see what happens. (laughs) Maybe they can come back together and reach some kind of agreement. We'll see. Anna Stewart, great to have you with us. To Israel now, where scientists are saying the efficacy rate for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is much lower when it's challenged by the Delta variant. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now with all the details. My sense on this, Elizabeth, you basically have a one in three chance of getting the Delta variant of COVID if you're exposed uh, and you've been vaccinated. But the protection against hospitalisation remains incredibly high and we we should talk about that too. 
That's right, Julia. And that really is the bottom line. And before we talk about these Israel numbers, I want to add a caveat here. The Israeli Ministry of Health just put these numbers out there. They did not explain how they arrived at them. So we can't go to other experts and say, hey, does this look right to you or not? Because they just put the numbers out without any kind of a study, without any kind of information, which many scientists would say is really quite irresponsible. But let's take a look at what they put out with that caveat. So what they found is that when you look at the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine now, now, now that the Delta variant is out there in such huge numbers, it's only 64% effective at preventing infection, at preventing infection. But to your point, Julia, it is 93% effective at preventing severe disease or hospitalization. That means that the vaccine wins. A vaccine researcher in the U.S., Dr. Paul Offit, once said to me, the purpose of a vaccine, Elizabeth, is to keep you out of the hospital and out of the morgue. In other words, if you just get infected, maybe you get a little bit of sick, maybe you miss a few days of work, that's a win. You didn't end up in the hospital and you didn't end up dead. Julia? Yeah. Elizabeth, thank you so much for that context there. And to your point, no peer review here, so we have to be very, very careful. Elizabeth Cohen. No study even. No study. Yes. No review, no study. Just just headlines. Right. Thank you. As always. All right, let's bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Florida is bracing for a storm surge, damaging winds and possible tornadoes as tropical storm Elsa approaches the state. Forecasters say it could grow stronger over the next 24 hours. Elsa tore through Cuba and the Cayman Islands on Monday, bringing heavy rain, strong winds and causing landslides. Hong Kong police have arrested nine people, including six secondary students, in what they say was a suspected bomb plot. Authorities say the suspects were part of the city's independence movement and were building explosives. CNN's Christy Lou Stout reports. Police in Hong Kong say that they have thwarted a suspected terror plot after arresting nine people, including high school students, on suspicion of terrorist offenses under the national security law. Police say they rented a hostel in the Kowloon area of Hong Kong to make homemade bombs and allegedly planned to target public facilities, including courts, public transit and cross-harbor tunnels in the city. Now, police also say they found an operation manual which had plans for an attack in early July. During the investigation, police said that they also picked up weaponry, chemicals, communication devices, and SIM cards. No bombs were made, police confirmed. Among the nine arrested, five are male, four are female, six are high school students. Their ages range from 15 to 39. Police say they belong to a Hong Kong independence group called Returning Valiant. Here's Steve Lee, senior superintendent of the Hong Kong Police Force. To establish a homemade lab, to manufacture improvised explosive devices in the middle of a busy city is very insane. I think everyone would agree with that. It's very irresponsible. It's very painful to see young people getting involved. It's a heinous act to lure young people into participating in this kind of activity. The arrests coincide with claims by officials that the threat of terrorism remains despite the national security law. In fact, earlier today, Hong Kong's top leader, Carrie Lam, warned of underground terrorist activity. She blamed external and domestic influences. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. All right, still ahead here on First Move, two of Indonesia's biggest startups tie up to form GoTo to turn pandemic problems into possibilities. But will it be a GoTo for investors also? 
And delivering on what truly matters, the CEO of Zipline talked to us about using drones to fight COVID-19 and ramping up investments. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where it's looking like a quiet open after the long holiday weekend. Wall Street begins the week with all the major indexes at all-time highs. The S&P 500 coming off its seventh record close in a row. Call it a pre-4th of July fireworks, though, with tech the big winner. Last week up almost 2%. Investors applauding the robust June jobs report and setting aside concerns for now that stronger U.S. growth could force the Federal Reserve to tighten policy faster. Now, the pandemic has created unique challenges for businesses all around the world, but also opportunities to consolidate or to diversify. Step forward, Indonesia's two largest startups. I'm talking about Gojek, which started as a motorcycle ride hailing firm, and Tokopedia, an e-commerce platform. They completed their merger in May to form Go2, a behemoth that accounts for around 2% of Indonesia's entire GDP. It allows you to order rides, food, make payments, buy items and much more. And the next step for GoTo could be of huge interest to investors too. A potential dual listing in Jakarta and New York, at least according to the rumours. Patrick Cow was the president of Tokopedia and is now president of GoTo. And he joins us from Singapore. Patrick, fantastic to have you on the show. Very excited to talk to you. Let's just take a step back because these were two huge businesses in their own right that you decided to combine. Just explain the moment you all as individuals and founders decided that you were better together. Thank you, Julia, for having me. Um, I feel like it was a long time in the making. We mm. actually pioneered the idea of ride hailing companies delivering e-commerce packages back in 2015. And then fast forward last year to the start of the pandemic, we were working with each other to deliver essential goods and services to all of Indonesia and support the government with a lot of their initiatives as well. So when William, Andre, Kevin and I got together uh, right before Christmas and we started talking about, you know, that very difficult journey in 2020 about our principles and values and what we wanted to accomplish, we realized that, you know, we're, we're really out looking to do the same thing. And as we compared the product roadmaps, you know, they almost overlapped identically. And so we felt that it was the right time to sort of get married amongst close friends uh, and put the businesses together where, you know, one plus one plus one would be greater than three. So, you know, we were able to accomplish that and approach our boards on Christmas Eve. And then, you know, less than five <laughs> months later, uh, you know, we're, we're married now, raising a family of thousands. Uh, so we're very busy. We're very excited. But there's a lot of work to be done, uh, especially to support our customers during this next wave of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic's accelerated many things, including something like this. And I can only imagine and the integration excitement and, uh, and challenges too. Just to give our viewers a sense of the numbers, and you can update me here if it's been added to, um, we're talking about 100 million monthly, monthly active users, more than 11 million merchants on the platform, over 2 million drivers in the ecosystem. Am I up to date on the numbers? Because that gives my view is the sense of scale that you have. That's about right, Julia. And what's amazing is that's all being done largely out of one country. Hmm. So we have the benefit of starting and building our business out of Indonesia. Um, you know, just for, for the, the audience's benefit, you know, we're the lar fourth largest population in the world. 
um, you know, one of the youngest, very rapid digital adoption. Um, so the demographics and the size uh, really present a, a, a massive opportunity for, for any business, especially for technology businesses like ours. Um, and what we've been able to do with the merger is really accelerate, you know, our ability to execute on any of the use cases that you mentioned previously. So in particular for commerce, you know, you can imagine during the pandemic, um, it's very hard to get access to, you know, grocery, essential goods and services, or even traditionally Indonesians, you know, like when I was growing up, you know, we'd have to go and walk to a bank branch to pay our bills. But because of GoTo, you know, all of the food, grocery uh, and services can be done hyper locally, Julia. So it's mm. fast, it's convenient. Um, and it really solves a, a huge pain point during this time that allows, you know, not just for customers like ourselves to be able to to sort of maintain a, a semblance of normalcy, but also to provide business continuity for our merchants uh, and, you know, consistent income for all the drivers and couriers uh, that rely on us and our platform. You know, I've done a bit of traveling in Indonesia, phenomenal country. But what I do recognize, and I think this ties to the growth opportunities, is it's okay building this kind of business. And you talked about it being localized in, in urban environments. But how do you serve, I think it was an estimated, what, 120 million people that live outside of those urban environments? And of course, it's a, it's a nation of islands too. What kind of challenges does that present? Great question. I mean, Indonesia is the largest archipelago country in the world. Right. Um, 260 million population, and you're right, you know, very spread out. And so the idea for GoTo is to provide anyone across Indonesia the same experience that we would get in the capital city of Jakarta. So across our ecosystem, we serve about 98% of the country, Julia, and two-thirds of our orders are delivered next day. And so what GoTo is able to do is we can take Gojek's 2 million bikers and whether you know, you're using our fulfillment center, you're doing offline to online as a retailer, or you know, a hyper-local SME or entrepreneur, then we can leverage those bikes to get the goods from the merchant closer to you, the customer. And you know, whenever you need it, we can deliver it to you very quickly. So that's one of the many ways that you know, we can create value and service customers during this time, but also because of the complexity of the country. And that's a very different approach because we're the most hyper-local platforms. That's not how our other peers who are from abroad have operated. And I think that makes, makes us you know, uniquely Indonesian, but also it's the reason why you know, we're the market leaders and the national champions. Um, another interesting, uh, I think, value add that we provide is around the payment side as well. So because Indonesia is largely a cash economy, GoTo allows us to unlock the power of cash. You, know, you can top up your wallet by any number of means uh, which is the, the widest in Indonesia. But in terms of the use cases, you can pay for almost anything. And so that serves us very well in terms of digital payments adoption, um, especially during COVID, and also helps us uh, compound the effects of uh, financial services, especially around lending when you know, the country needs it the most. And because we have the richest data, we can also score customers the best as well. It's funny, um, you're answering my questions before I've even answered them because I was looking at the data on this. 47 million adults who lack access to mainstream financial services, 92 million people who've, who've never used a bank. And I feel very passionately about tackling the unbanked. So if you have a sort of super app that can provide financial services to people as well, that 
clearly is another huge growth opportunity. You're going to have to come back and talk to me about that entirely separately because we're going to run out of time. Um, neither side of the business is profitable. How are you thinking about, I know you're in growth phrase, so it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to have in itself, but in terms of timing or the necessity of profitability before you perhaps look at going public, dual listing or otherwise, talk me through uh, the thinking on these things. Yeah, it's a great question. I think we hit a massive inflection point during COVID where, you know, there was a lot of needs-based demand. So you can see across the business a massive improvement in unit economics. But you're right, you know, in terms of the expectation, in terms of the opportunity, any one of our on-demand e-commerce or financial services use cases is still in the low single digits penetration. Mm -hmm. So with that kind of opportunity, with that kind of market sizing in terms of Indonesia and our other markets, it makes a lot of sense to just invest in growth. And so, you know, um, throughout the pandemic, but especially with GoTo, you know, the combination of that ecosystem play allows us to create a lot of stickiness in terms of retention, in terms of how much people spend per transaction and in terms of frequency. So that's increased a lot. And on the cost side, you can imagine that, you know, with every dollar of marketing and promotion, Julia, we can grow multiple businesses. So as an example, you know, very recently, I bought a package on Tokopedia, right? It was, a, well, actually it was this shirt. And then I paid for it um, with GoPay. It was delivered by Gojek using a pay later products. And I had insurance coverage for, for both the delivery and the good. So, you know, you can imagine the kind of ways that, you know, we can incorporate the ecosystem to serve customers, but also because we're a technology platform you know, we, we are able to build a lot of network effects and economies of scale. Um, and congratulations, because I love the shirt. And that was very efficient in terms of ordering and getting it to you. You didn't mention anything about potential IPO timing. Patrick, I have 30 seconds. What can you tell me? Sure. I mean, it accelerated our plans a lot in terms of size, in terms of scale, in terms of impact. I think we're well on track uh, for this both year? our pre-IPO and our IPO. Um, I think we're on track. I think, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot more about it during our next, uh, our next catch-up. <laughs> Come back and speak to us soon, please. Loads more to discuss. Um, good. Great to have you on. Thank you for your time. Patrick Cowder, President so of GoTo. No, thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the first trading day of this holiday shortened week. A pretty calm picture in early trading after the 4th of July firework festivities, but tech rising to fresh records. And popular Chinese app firms that trade in the United States are the main focus of attention on Wall Street. Yeah, those figures belie the turbulence below. Shares of ride-hailing giant Didi Global tumbling after being yanked from Chinese app stores on Beijing's data security concerns. Weibo, meanwhile, shares remain higher on conflicting reports that the chairman of the social media platform is in talks to take the firm private. We have had these rumours over the past year crop up before. Reports say Weibo is now denying that a private listing is on the cards. All this, as the Chinese cabinet announces that the country will further increase regulation of all of its overseas listed companies. They're challenging the United States for the crackdown there, too. And yet another major ransomware attack is rattling the world. A Russian-based cyber criminal group that's also allegedly behind the recent attack on JBS Meats 
now demanding $70 million after targeting many small and medium-sized businesses. Software vendor Kaysea says fewer than 1,500 businesses have been affected. Claire Sebastian joins us now with all the details. Uh, fewer than 1,500 is still 1,500, it seems, and these attackers think that they've certainly created some havoc because they're asking $70 million to decrypt what they've created here. Claire? Yeah, this is interesting, Julia, as we watch the sort of evolving tactics uh, of these these ransomware attackers. This was an attack that sort of hitched a ride on IT management software. So the original sort of attack was on Kaseya, which has uh, this, this management software that it distributes to clients and distributes updates over that software. These clients then in turn have their own clients who they use that software to sort of help manage their IT operations. So if you think of it sort of like a, a waterfall effect, a trickle down through these different customers, the latest update we got from Kaseya said that 50 of their direct customers was affected. And, and that then in turn affected no more than 1,500 of their customers, what they call downstream customers. But these are small businesses, the likes of sort of restaurants, dentist office, people with less than 30 employees who can really not afford to deal with the mitigation that this kind of attack brings. But but overall, look, this is the big picture. We've seen a huge surge in ransomware throughout the pandemic over the last year and a half. And these tactics continue to evolve, Julia, in ways that in some cases are pretty scary. I'd like to notify you that we've downloaded 500 gigabytes of your data from your servers. The voice sounds like something out of a hostage movie. Except here, the hostage is data. Attackers are getting more aggressive in terms of they're doing their research and um, finding out who the key players are at the company that they've compromised, and then they are reaching out to them. Cybersecurity expert Karen Sprenger says the voicemail was left for the CEO of a client of hers, a large American company hit by a ransomware attack last October. They hadn't reached out to the attacker yet, and so uh, that was just the attacker's um, push on them to try and get them to contact them. If you're planning to just restore your data without paying for decryption, we'll sell your company's private data on Darknet. The threats worked. Springer says the company paid a ransom of several hundred thousand dollars and the attackers provided a decryptor tool which successfully restored their data without it being published on the dark web. In 2020, according to blockchain analytics company Chainalysis, ransomware victims are known to have paid the equivalent of at least $400 million in ransom payments, more than four times the known 2019 level. Those numbers continue to climb as more payments come to light. The criminals using it don't even need to have any technical experience. They can go on the dark web and they can purchase or lease um, access to software that allows them to um, release ransomware on a company's network. Then, if the victim decides to pay, some attackers will negotiate. In this email chain from late May, Sprenger says she's negotiating on behalf of another client, a small healthcare provider on the U.S. East Coast. The attacker's opening demand, one Bitcoin, then worth around $36,000. Sprenger, who uses a different email account and pseudonym for each negotiation, tells the attacker her client has insurance, but it will only cover a small portion of the ransom. A detail, she says, a hacker who had infiltrated a company's network might already know. We're starting to see, too, where the attackers go through the data and look for um cyber insurance policies to see what the deductible is and to understand how much coverage they have. They eventually settle on a little less than half the original demand. 
currency of choice for ransomware attackers is, experts say, overwhelmingly Bitcoin because of its perceived anonymity and widespread usage. And so to help victims navigate this process, cybersecurity experts say a common feature of the ransomware experience includes some kind of, call it, customer support. They will set up some kind of communication and then step by step tell them, you know, how to access an exchange, how to set up a wallet, uh, you know, the kind of cryptocurrency that they want the payment to be made within. And in fact, they even help troubleshoot. And yet, because Bitcoin transactions are stored on a public blockchain, they are traceable. The old adage, follow the money, still applies. The Colonial Pipeline case showed how law enforcement was able to track and seize cryptocurrency worth $2.3 million. In a similar success story in January, the Department of Justice seized almost half a million dollars worth of cryptocurrency from ransom payments associated with NetWalker, another prolific ransomware strain. They did that with the help of blockchain forensics tools from Chainalysis. It provides unprecedented insights into the supply chain for these groups. Um, you know, what they are doing with the cryptocurrency, how they are moving it, identifying those affiliates and additional connectivity, how they are laundering the money. The FBI says private sector partnerships are one of its biggest tools against the cyber threat. For companies, it's about stepping up their cyber defenses to avoid being next. If we leak that data, your business will be as good as gone. And Julia, don't underestimate the impact that attacks like this can have on businesses. There's not only the cost of mitigation, assuming they manage to restore their data without paying a ransom. There's the cost of lost business days. Look at that Swedish supermarket that had to close hundreds of stores over the weekend because it was affected by uh, the ransomware attack on, on Kaseya. They say most of their stores uh, have now reopened. But what about all that food that they might have not, not been able to sell? And then, of course, you have reputational damage. This is why you see Kaseya coming out with regular updates, trying to get in front of this, trying to rebuild trust in their products. I mean, fantastic report, phenomenal report. I hadn't even thought about the insurance implications, but also what we saw with the, um, the payment that was made, the ransom that was paid in recent weeks where the value of Bitcoin had dropped. And so what was recovered was just over half of what was initially paid. Claire, do we know if Kaseya actually paid the ransom? Have they said anything? The CEO uh, did do an interview today with Reuters where he said he does not want to comment on anything around what he called negotiation with terrorists. Obviously, as I, as I said, this is, this is a reputational issue. Companies uh, really don't want to be, to be seen to be a victim of ransomware attacks because, of course, it shows that there was a vulnerability in their systems. And, and even more than that, they don't want to be seen to be to having had to have paid because that shows that that was their only choice to restore their data. This is a really, really tricky issue when it comes to payment of ransoms. Of course, the FBI doesn't encourage it because it provides an incentive to these criminals. That's why we've seen such an uptick in recent months. But, but many companies find themselves in a position where they feel that they don't have any choice because uh, it's not only about the locking of the data in many cases with these ransomware attacks, you have a threat that they might actually leak the data. And that is, is just a step too far for many companies. Yeah, and it's ramping up to your point. Great report, Claire. Thank you so much for that. Okay, and from the dark side of tech to the life-saving side, we speak to the CEO of drone delivery company Zipline about their new partnerships, raising money, and growth plans for the future. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to First Move. Drone delivery company Zipline made its name carrying vital medical supplies to remote destinations across Africa. It's already played an important role in combating COVID-19, partnering with firms like UPS and Pfizer, and aims to deliver more than 2 million vaccine doses by the end of the year. And now they've just raised a further $250 million from investors, ticking Zipline's valuation to more than $2.5 billion. Zipline CEO Keller Ronaldo joins us now with more Hello, fantastic to have you on the show as always. Wow, you guys have been busy and congratulations on the funding round, raising more money. You're clearly growing incredibly quickly. Thanks for having me, Julia. Talk to me about the investment raise, the money raise. What are you planning to do with the money? Yeah, of course. Well, really the thing that... uh, precipitated us raising more money from investors was the growth that we saw last year. Obviously, the pandemic created uh, a really challenging situation for healthcare systems across the world. Um, We really saw two primary changes. One was in the uh, uh, East and West African countries that Zipline currently operates in. We operate at national scale in Rwanda and Ghana. Uh, serving about 2,500 hospitals and health facilities across both countries. When COVID began, we really saw that so many of these health care systems had to transform the way they were working and serving patients. So, for example, um, in the first month of quarantine, we actually, uh, a lot of traditional supply chains for EPI vaccines, so just traditional vaccines, actually um, stopped working. And we saw demand for those normal childhood vaccines go up by about 10x on, um, on through Zipline's network. So over the last eight months, Zipline has delivered over 3 million doses of vaccine to rural, suburban, primary care facilities and hospitals, making it possible for kids to get vaccinated during a pandemic when they otherwise wouldn't. We also played a role in delivering, um, in delivering COVID-19 samples from rural areas to national testing labs. And then finally, once the COVID-19 vaccine was available, we, we were able to use Zipline to deliver that vaccine to, so that rural hospitals and health facilities could vaccinate people as quickly as those in urban centers. So we've really seen so many of these developing world health systems use automated logistics and autonomous logistics for, to make healthcare available to all. And then toward the second half of that pandemic, we saw a lot of health systems in the U.S. starting to go down that exact same path, particularly um, hospital systems that are trying to figure out ways of uh, delivering care closer to where patients live. Um, So I think a lot of them are really seeing instant logistics as the other half of telepresence, both of which are really, really important parts of running a health system uh, during a pandemic. You know, this is such an important point. And I I talk a lot sort of behind the scenes and off air about how transformative telemedicine has been, not just for COVID, but will be going forward, whether you're in the West or you're on the continent of Africa. But your point there, I think, is critical. Once you've Zoomed a doctor and ascertained that you need a prescription of some sort, how do you then get that prescription to somebody? You're saying this is sort of the second piece to that and they go hand in hand. Exactly right. How quickly can you scale up? Because you've said that you've sort of tested the technology. And I remember the last time you came on, you said, actually, we at times we had to go back to the drawing board with the operations that you had in places like Rwanda. Now, if you try and export some of that experience, I've seen comments that you want to be able to serve the majority of single family detached homes across the United States over the coming three years or so. 
that's ambitious, Keller. You know, we uh, Zipline began operating at multinational scale about uh, five years ago. And so, to be honest, when we started serving, when, when we served the first you know, 21 hospitals um, that Zipline ever served, we, we actually took years figuring out ways of, uh, well, b- basically evolving the system, iterating, um, improving every aspect of the technology, of the ordering systems, of the software that doctors and nurses will use to place orders with, uh, with Zipline. Also figuring out ways of making the system reliable enough that today 25 million people and their kids can depend on it with their lives. Uh, so the good news is we've actually had five years to improve the reliability um, and, and, and just dependability of the system so that it actually is ready to scale. And we believe very, very strongly there's a moral imperative to do this. I mean, if countries like Rwanda and Ghana can lead the world and can get to the point where uh, they've put every single one of their citizens within a 15 to 25 minute delivery of any essential medical product, then every country on earth can do this. So, you know, absolutely, it is ambitious to think that, you know, possibly in the next 10 years, we could put every human on earth within a 15 to 25 minute delivery of any essential medical product. But we think that it's about time that humanity tackle that project and technology, you know, the the, the technology exists to make it possible to do so. Yes, nothing modest about that ambition. But to your point, it's going to save lives in the process. What do you think about competition? I mean, you're in the United States, for example, you're coming up against um, sort of Alphabet, Amazon, UPS, who I know you've partnered with in in parts of the world as well. Um, They're sort of backed efforts. And in some cases, they have FAA certification already, because that's one of the big challenges here is, you know, the questions that you and I have talked about in the past, safety, if you've got drones zipping around. How do you think about that? and the challenge that that represents? You know, Zipline focuses a lot more on our customers who are health systems that we serve and the patients who depend on us. Um, Zipline is the only company in the world that operates an autonomous, I mean, today we operate the largest commercial autonomous system on earth, and it's the only uh, autonomous delivery system of this kind operating at scale. So certainly there are a lot of big companies that are investing you know, huge amounts of money into into the space and into the industry in order to provide these kinds of services. But you know, over the last five years, it's actually more felt like Zipline is alone and in, in, you know providing this kind of a service. I think the the other thing I would say is you know this mission is it's more it's bigger than one one company. It's it you know there's there's a huge amount of room. We would actually welcome more companies. Uh, providing these kinds of services, especially in the countries that um, that, that you know depend on them or or um, need them the most. So I actually would love if more com- companies were doing this rather than fewer. Talk to me about the partnership with Walmart. So uh, mid last year, we uh, announced that Walmart was uh, partnering with Zipline in order to build the first kinds of automated logistics for pharmaceutical products, as well as health and wellness products across the United States. And we're starting in, uh, in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is you know, the, the home of Walmart. So uh, we've been building that, dis- that first uh, automated distribution center. And, from, and, and we basically connect directly with um, their infrastructure and their stores. So their goal is to put every single Walmart customer um, uh, within, you know, within range of a 15 to 25 minute delivery of any pharmaceutical product or health and wellness product that that person might need. So obviously, um, you know, a really, really relevant project during the pandemic, but something that we see extending 
um, hopefully to every home in the United States, as you mentioned, we, you know, if, if someone is feeling not, not feeling well, or if your kid is feeling sick, you ought to be able to pull out a phone, press a button on the phone and have the product you need delivered you know, 10 or 25 minutes later um, without needing to leave your home. A drone eye view of the future, perhaps. Keller, it's great to have you on. And um, yeah, your, your focus on improving outcomes, I think, for people and encouraging competition is um, rewarding to hear. The CEO of Zipline, always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the money raise. All right, more. First move after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The drama-filled story of Diddy remains one of our top stories this Tuesday. Diddy Global and other U.S.-listed Chinese apps are getting thwacked as Beijing ramps up its cybersecurity crackdown. Shares of Chinese social media platform Weibo also actively traded in the session. Paul and Monica is here. Wow, Paul, I tell you what, story aside, if you're in a U.S. investor looking at a Chinese company, never mind today, just I think over the last year, if you bring in a Luckin Coffee, for example, as well, you have to be incredibly cautious now about these Chinese names. Yeah, I think investors have learned the hard way that despite the fact that there is a lot of promise and potential with the Chinese economy and all of these digital firms that are native to China that are growing extremely rapidly and adding users, you have the threat at any given time that Beijing was just gonna wag its finger and say, nope, we we see something that we don't like and maybe it's accounting, maybe it's a founder who's talking a little too much in a critical way like Jack Ma with Alibaba. And then there's this big crackdown and you see these stocks are plunging on it. Didi just went public last week with great fanfare and the stock has come tumbling down because of these concerns about cybersecurity and the fact that Beijing is now looking into and suspending uh, you know, new users for the company. Yeah, and big questions over who knew what when in terms of the timing of this, Paul, as well. Very quickly, Weibo all over the place. Some investors looking at a juicy, potentially going private option for this company. The company now denying it, I believe, formally yeah. denying it. Weibo, China's Twitter, the stock was up more than 40% pre-market because of several reports saying that uh, you know the company's founder and others were looking to take it private. But Weibo put out a press release just before the market opened saying, not so fast. We're not having any discussions. Stock is still up, but it's about only 12 or 13% now, a far cry from where it was earlier this morning when there were hopes that maybe a deal to go private would be imminent. Yeah, you don't know whether to sell these stocks or buy them, quite frankly, if they're going to be delisted and just take away some of the threat for international investors and the volatility, or they go down because they're in the uh, you know, center of a dartboard here for Chinese regulators. Tough to trade. Paula Monica. Thank you so much for that. All right. And finally, on first move is the Dalai Lama celebrates his 86th birthday. An unusual portrait of him has been sold for top dollar. A French artist known as Invader made a mosaic out of 225 Rubik's cubes to depict the Buddhist leader. It sold for over $550,000 at auction in Paris on Monday. Last year's Invader interpretation of the Mona Lisa, also made out of Rubik's Cubes, also sold for more than half a million dollars. Where's her eyes? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. It's okay with the art. My question is, did they have to actually solve the Rubik's Cubes first? Because that could have taken a while. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my social media at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And we'll see you tomorrow. 
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.